plans to go beyond borders with us coming up in October, July, October 25th through 29th. And, uh, you know, mark it on your calendars, make plans now, carve out that time and, and come and join us as we go beyond borders on that Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. We have a Saturday morning breakfast, Saturday luncheon for the ladies, and of course all day on Sunday with our celebration and our Celebrate Unplugged in the evening. And uh, I hope you will join us and you won't miss it. And I'm just excited about it. I hope you're getting excited. In fact, I was so excited about it, I kind of jumped the gun on the women's luncheon. And uh, it's selling tickets today. I was ready to sell tickets. And you'll, it's in your bulletin that we're going to do that. But I jumped ahead of what Chris and Dana are prepared to do. And, uh, and so they, the tickets will not go on sale until next Sunday, ladies. And they're seven bucks a piece, and you can buy those beginning next Sunday and for the next four Sundays. And uh, so just a little note, if you see that in the bulletin, uh, that's my goof jumping ahead because I'm so excited, and I hope you will be as well as we get ready. I'm sure none of you have ever heard of Larry Waters. Perhaps someone has. Anybody heard of Larry Waters? I didn't think so. His story is rather compelling, though. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly, and so when he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. So when he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself by watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided to fly anyways. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased, get this, 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, each measured more than four feet across. At home, Larry securely strapped the weather balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with the helium. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite, loaded his pellet gun, and figured he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went to his lawn chair. He tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 35 feet above his backyard. After severing the anchor, and in a few hours, come back down. Things did not quite work out that way. When he cut the cord, anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he did not float lazily up to 30 or so feet, but instead he streaked into the L.A. skies as the shot from a cannon. He did not level off at 30 feet, but instead leveled off at 11,000 feet. At this height, he could not risk shooting any of the balloons, lest he unbalanced the lawn chair. He stayed there drifting for more than 14 hours. Then Larry got into real trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach area of the Los Angeles International Airport. A United Airlines pilot first spotted Larry. He radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert, and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. 
Night was falling. An offshore breeze was beginning to flow. It began to carry Larry out over the ocean with the helicopter in hot pursuit. Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to, cl to close in for a rescue. However, the draft from the blades kept pushing Larry away whenever they sneered. So finally the helicopter ascended to a position several feet hundred ab above Larry and lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. Now, as you might imagine, as soon as Larry was brought back to Earth, he was arrested for violating airspace. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter asked him why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned, and replied, Well, a man just can't sit around. <laughs> the Apostle Paul would wholeheartedly agree with that. A man just can't sit around. A few months have passed since Paul returned from his first missionary journey, and let me tell you, Paul is tired of just sitting around, even though he's been teaching and preaching in the Antioch church. Paul is eager to go back to Asia Minor, where he and Barnabas first shared the gospel. He is ready to end his furlough and go beyond borders with the gospel once again. After all, a man just can't sit around. Paul also knows that going beyond borders is not for the faint of heart. It requires a great deal of dedication and devotion, passion and perseverance, which is why he insisted we're not taking John Mark with us. And instead, Paul chose Silas and a young disciple named Timothy to go beyond borders with the gospel. And so what we see here in Acts 16 is this universal principle that applies to every Christ follower here today. And so here's the big idea, here's the big principle that kind of hovers over this whole chapter that we're going to look at this morning. And that's this. To bridge the gap to all peoples with the gospel, we must be wholly abandoned to God's mission for His glory. Wholly abandoned to God's mission for His glory. J.C. Ryle was a pastor and theologian in the 19th century who once wrote on this topic of zeal or total abandonment to the Lord. J.C. Ryle writes, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. That is the Apostle Paul. So here's the question for us to consider. What would happen if every Christ follower here today was zealous for one thing? To bridge the gap to all peoples 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Wesley once said, Give me 100 men who hate nothing but sin and love God with all their hearts and I will shake the world for Christ. Paul is an example of this. He's an example of what it means to be wholly abandoned to God's mission for God's glory. In fact, later on, he would write in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This was certainly true on this second missionary journey. And so what I want us to do is to draw out, kind of unpack, if you will, three lessons for bridging the gap to all people. Three lessons that require us to be wholly abandoned to God's mission for God's glory. The first lesson is this. Follow the Spirit of God as He guides. Follow the Spirit of God as He guides. These next few verses in Acts 16, they are huge. What we're about to read has implications for why we have the gospel right here in Kansas City. Having strengthened the church in regions where they had already been on their first missionary journey, Paul and his team of Silas and Timothy set out for new territories further beyond borders. They wanted to go into parts of the world that was then called Asia Minor. It's, it's part of what is now modern-day Turkey that had, some, at that time, some major cities in it. But notice what happens in verse 6. Look at it with me again. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. In other words, they were literally cut off by the Spirit of God and kept from going to Asia. Now, how this happened, we have no idea. And so I'm not even going to speculate how it happened. Luke tells us in verses 7 through 8, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. In other words, everywhere Paul is trying to go, what's happening? The doors are shutting in his face. Silas and Timothy must have thought, does he even know what he's doing? We got on board with this dude. And is he, does he have a plan? Does he know what he's doing? Have you ever had the door shut in your, mouth, in your face? Shut on your plans? You thought it looked open, and you thought it was a great opportunity, but when you got there, it closed on you, and it locked shut. God can open doors wide, and He can shut them tight. And God uses both open doors and closed doors to get us to where He wants us to go. In this case of Paul and his team, the overall effect that the Spirit of God was having on Paul was to funnel him directly west where he would end up in the city of Troas. By the way, a city in which he had no plans to go to. It was not on his radar. Troas was a port city on the western coast of Asia Minor, just across from Greece. Forced there by a series of closed doors, the Lord finally showed Paul an open door. What happened next was entirely unexpected. Verses 9 and 10 says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man in Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, 
We have no idea who this man was in Paul's dream or vision. What we do know is that God's direction for Paul was crystal clear. Europe was calling for help. The people of Europe needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what's fascinating here is Macedonia was not on Paul's radar, but it was on God's radar, which meant that in his sovereign plan, we were also on God's radar. With this move to Macedonia, the gospel comes to Europe, and from Europe the gospel came to us. As one writer says, this was... This was one of the great turning points of history, and we should thank God for it. For as a result, the gospel has come to us in the West. And while the Lord doesn't usually speak through visions and dreams these days, let me tell you, the Lord still does speak. He speaks to us, and He guides us through His Word and through His Spirit. And so here's the question. How does God guide us today? How do we follow the Spirit of God? How do we do this? Well, notice this in your notes on the screen. As we obey God's commands, God directs our steps. So as we obey God's commands, He directs our steps, and He always has something better for us than we would plan for ourselves. Now let me just set the picture for you here. Paul was not just sitting around saying, Lord, what do you want me to do today? He was actively obeying God's command to go and make disciples of all peoples. Paul didn't need to pray about going and sharing the gospel. God's already given us the Great Commission. And so Paul is not sitting back waiting for God to reveal his will again. I would make the application this way. Where God has already revealed his will in his word, we don't need to sit back and wait on the will of God. He's already told us what it is. I would even go a step further that 99% of God's plan for your lives is already revealed to you in the Word of God. He's already told us how He wants us to live as Christ's followers. And so we don't need to sit back and wait on the will of God. Instead, we need to walk in the will of God. And here's the beauty of it all. As you're walking in God's will and obeying God's commands, He will direct our steps. And it's always the best direction for our good and for his glory. Paul had no idea what was coming that night. He couldn't have organized it. He couldn't have planned for it or even foreseen it. Paul was simply obeying. He was following the desire of his harp, his gifts, and his shape as a missionary. He was going beyond borders. And as he obeyed, God led him to a place he never had planned for himself. Isn't this what we see in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Where we are told, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In other words, in all your ways, submit to Him. Yield to Him. And He will make your path straight. He'll direct you. 
Listen, God is not up in heaven trying to hide His will for your life from you. God wants His will to be accomplished in your life, and so much so that He has given us His Word, and He's given us His Holy Spirit to guide us. So follow the Spirit as He directs your steps. It's not always the most direct route, by the way. Sometimes, God's direction is a zigzag route. All you got to do is go to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, to figure that out. When God led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, a pillar of fire by night, clouds by day, he didn't lead them on a direct route. He guided them one day at a time, but it was a zigzag route. And there were times where they were questioning and wondering, where is God taking us? God doesn't always make a beeline for where he has us and wants us to go because he wants us to learn something in the process of getting us there. And that is to depend on him and to trust him and to follow his spirit as his spirit guides us. This leads us to the second lesson for bridging the gap to all peoples. Proclaim the gospel of God as you go. So now the gospel is going to Europe, and the destination is Philippi. Having heard the gospel cry for help, Paul set sail across the Aegean Sea to Greece. And Luke tells us in verse 12 that they went to Philippi because it was the foremost city in that part of Macedonia. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, a Roman city, if you will, with all the privileges of Roman citizenship. Basically, it was a city where Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire. Its citizens were exempt from paying provincial taxes. Wouldn't that be nice? And the people married, mirrored the culture of Rome. Paul and his team, they were now in for a complete cross-cultural experience in Philippi. And what we see in the rest of Acts 16 are three gospel conversations with three different people. These three gospel encounters may seem rather insignificant to us. As Jeremy read them for us, I don't know what your thoughts were as he read each of these encounters. But Luke is trying to show us something with each of these three encounters. Luke is showing us the significance of the gospel's power to save different people. Now, don't miss this. The gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, regardless of their gender, their race, or their status in life. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In other words, the gospel is for everyone. And that's regardless of gender, race, or status. Because the gospel, listen to this, is all-inclusive. To save everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. These three people here in Acts 16, let me tell you, they are as different as different can be. We have a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a prison guard. Lydia is Asian. The slave girl is Greek. And the prison guard is Roman. 
Lydia is upper class. The slave girl is lower class. And the prison guard is middle class. Lydia is spiritually open to God. The slave girl is spiritually hostile towards God. And the prison guard is spiritually indifferent towards God. And yet, when each of them encountered Jesus Christ in the gospel, let me tell you, he radically changed their lives. And that's what Luke wants us to see here. And this is the gospel's power to save everyone, regardless of race, gender, or status. Notice, first of all, God saves an upper-class Asian businesswoman. The first person to be saved in Philippi was a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira in western Turkey. By the way, this is ironic here. Western Turkey is where Paul originally wanted to go. God wouldn't let him. God sent him west over to Macedonia where he meets a lady named Lydia who was from where he originally wanted to go. God's plans are always better than ours. She was probably a widow who moved to Philippi to do business there selling purple cloth, which was very expensive to make and to buy. So, in other words, she sold beautiful, expensive garments to rich people, which also meant she was wealthy herself. Luke tells us in verse 13 that Paul met Lydia down by the river outside of the town of Philippi where she was praying with some other women. Now, this tells us a lot. In fact, it tells us two things. It tells us a lot about the spiritual condition of Philippi. For Jewish law required a synagogue in any town where there were at least ten Jewish men. Which means there were less than ten Jewish men who worshipped the God of Israel in this city of Philippi. Furthermore, there were only women praying down by the river. This also tells us a lot about, get this, Paul's attitude towards women. You see, there are some who try to paint Paul as a hater of women. They try to mischaracterize him in that way. And it's inaccurate to do so. Perhaps the old Paul was, but not the new Paul. As a former Pharisee, yes, Paul would have perhaps prayed something like this. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. So what changed Paul's attitude towards women? The gospel did. It's all-inclusive to save everyone who believes regardless of gender, race, or status. And so instead of being chauvinistic and walking away from this group of women down by the river, what does Paul do? He meets with them. He interacts with them. He tries to make friends with them. He gladly proclaims the gospel to them. Verse 14 says Lydia was a worshiper of God. That means she believes in the God of the Jews. So she's religious, but she's not yet a true Christ follower. But notice what happens when Paul engages her with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What things? The gospel what a marvelous example of God's amazing grace at work here. 
Do you see what's happening? God is taking a woman who is still dead in her sins and making her alive in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel to save everyone who believes in Jesus, regardless of what? Gender, race, or status. According to verse 15, Lydia was baptized. In fact, probably right there in the river along with her household who had believed and as further testimony to her salvation, her home then becomes Paul's base for reaching Philippi with the gospel. So God saves, first of all, an upper-class Asian businesswoman. Second, God saves now a lower-class Greek slave girl. This slave girl was owned not just by her masters, but by a demonic spirit that dominated her life. Look what... Verse 16 says about her. Now it happened. As we went to prayer, where do you think that was? Down by the river again. That a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This slave girl is probably in her mid-teens. We don't know for certain. And the word master suggests that her parents probably sold her off. She's not in a good place in life. It is the worst place in life. And now she's in double bondage. First, to an evil spirit that enabled her to predict the future. And second, she's in bondage to her masters who were exploiting her fortune-telling abilities for their own fortune. But notice what this pearl poor slave girl does after she meets Paul and his mission team. Luke tells us in verse 17, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Verse 18, and this she did for many days. Now, when you first read that, you're like, wow, sounds like some free advertising for Paul and his missions team. Who turns down free advertising? Nobody does. But Paul was greatly annoyed by it all. Why? Because what had initially been heard as true was now causing a scene. You see, her praising was really, it was mocking. And her mocking was distracting from the gospel message that Jesus was, get this, the only way of salvation. Especially since Greek culture believed in many, many, many false gods. And this was just one more God to add to the list. And so when she proclaimed God is the most high God, they were like, oh yeah, give us that one too. Finally, Paul's heard enough. And according to verse 18, he turned to the slave girl and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out immediately. Now, although Luke doesn't say this slave girl trusted in Christ for salvation, like we saw with Lydia, the assumption is credible that she did. In fact, I agree with most Bible scholars who draw the conclusion that since she's been delivered by the name of Christ, she has probably come to faith in Christ and is now part of the church of Christ here in the city of Philippi. Luke adds an ironic play on words here in verse 18 when he says that the Spirit came out of her or it left her. 
He uses the same Greek phrase in verse 19, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. In other words, here's the play on words. The spirit left the slave girl, and so did their hope of money. Everything was A-OK until Paul and Silas messed with their money-making scheme. And so they seized Paul and Silas. And it's this sovereign turn of events that ensures that Paul and Silas end up in prison, ready to engage a different person with the life-changing power of the gospel, which brings us to number three, where God saves a middle-class Roman prison guard. Paul and Silas find themselves under the oversight of a Roman prison guard. So who is this dude? Well, prison guards in that day and age were often highly decorated Roman soldiers who, as a retirement gift, were given prisons to oversee. It was kind of like a reward for your years of service. And so this Roman prison guard, he's older, he's probably part of the working class, and I'm sure his heart is rather hardened. I'm sure he's rather cynical from all the years of working as a Roman soldier. And yet... Oh, this is beautiful. And yet, the gospel was powerful enough to soften his heart and save him. Now, what happens next is nothing short of a miracle at midnight. Let's pick up the story in verses 25 through 27. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Well, in those days, if a prison guard lost his prisoners, let me tell you, he paid for it with his own life. Kind of a motivation not to lose your prisoners. But notice what Paul says to him in verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Serves you right, you bigot. No, that's not what Paul says to him. Paul says, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now, that brings up a rather interesting question. Why is Paul and Silas still there? They're innocent, right? The doors are open. The chains are off. Wasn't this the, an act of God, by the way, an earthquake that caused this? Absolutely. Didn't this just happen to Peter back in Acts chapter 12? And didn't Peter just walk out of the prison then? Yes, that's what Peter did. So why is Paul and Silas still hanging around in the prison? Here's the answer. Paul recognizes that this is all part of God's plan to reach Philippi. And so Paul stands there with his freedom on his right hand and on his left hand, a cruel man who had tortured him the night before. And Paul tells him, don't kill yourself, we're all here. Amazed. 
and even overwhelmed by what he saw and what he heard from Paul, the prison guard asked the most important question anyone can ask in life. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Listen, salvation is not something you do, but something that has already been done for you by Jesus Christ with His death on the cross and resurrection. Salvation is something you respond to by faith. And so Paul gives the most important answer of all time to the most important question of all time. In verse 31, when Paul says to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And as a testimony of their belief in Jesus Christ for salvation, Luke tells us in verse 33, And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, again, the overarching lesson in all this is all mankind, male or female, rich or poor, black or white, young or old, hippie or hipster, conservative or liberal, religious or irreligious, all mankind has one problem. Sin. And one hope of salvation. Jesus Christ. Yes, the way of salvation is exclusive to Jesus Christ. But the invitation of salvation is inclusive of everyone. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God saves everyone who believes in Jesus regardless of what? Gender, race, or status. So the gospel is great news for a wealthy businesswoman. The gospel is great news for a poor slave girl. Let me tell you, the gospel is great news for a hardened prison guard. But it meant trials and troubles for Paul and Silas when they proclaimed it. Which brings us to our final lesson in bridging the gap to all peoples. Trust the grace of God as trials occur. Because they will. Trust the grace of God. Look what happens when Paul and Silas are falsely accused of causing trouble in Philippi. Verses 19 through 21 tells us, But when her masters, that is the slave girl's masters, saw that their hope of profit was gone. Let me tell you, they're not happy about it. They're upset, they're irate. And so they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You know what these men are doing, her masters? Get this, folks. They're playing the race card against Paul and Silas when they accuse them of being Jews, which they are, but they're using that. They're playing the race card against them, and they're also playing the legal card against Paul and Silas, which was a false accusation. And now they're using the courts against them in this regard. Now, that's what happens when enemies of Jesus 
That's what enemies of Jesus do. And so when we see it happening today, which by the way, we are, we see it before our eyes, even in our own country, we shouldn't be shocked by this. We shouldn't be surprised. What happens next is brutal in verses 24, I mean 22 through 24. It says, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And this is now the first of three such beatings that Paul will endure. And when they had laid many stripes on them, how many stripes? To be scourged in that day and age by a Roman was 39 stripes. 39 times. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Make no mistake about it. Paul and Silas were tortured here. They were tortured for proclaiming the gospel. They were beaten, they were bloodied, they were bruised, and then they were bound in the dungeon of the prison. Makes you wonder, whatever happened to the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. Listen, sometimes that's the most dangerous place to be, is in the middle of God's will. The most dangerous place for Paul and Silas to be was right here in the middle of Macedonia, heading west into Europe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at this point, do you think Paul and Silas were tempted to question God's plans? You think they were wondering, was this all a mistake, God? Did we read this wrong? Yes, this was dangerous for them, and yet, as they sat there in prison, they knew something. They knew they were not ultimately prisoners of Rome. Rather, they were prisoners of Jesus Christ, suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's what we think. Myself included. We. This is what we're tempted to think when we encounter trials and troubles. Oh, this is hard. God either made a mistake or I must be doing something wrong. This is hard. God's made a mistake or I'm doing something wrong. This is hard. But often the opposite is true. God sustains his people and he sustains his people in his plans. You say, how is that? Notice this right here in your notes. Regardless of our circumstances, both good and bad, God gives us a song to sing and a church to strengthen you. Now watch what happens to Paul and Silas. God turns their suffering into singing. That is amazing. Luke writes in verse 25, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can I remind you of something here? That no matter what dark and painful circumstances you find yourself in right now, or in the future, you will never be without a song to sing. And you'll never be without a song to sing, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter who you lose, no matter what happens in life, because our sovereign Lord holds your life in His hands. And God will use your sufferings, get this, 
for your good, for other people's good, and ultimately for His glory. And that's what we're wholly abandoned to. That's what we're zealous for. And so we trust the grace of God as trials and troubles occur in our life, and they will. And get this. This is beautiful. No one has to suffer alone. God gives us a church to strengthen us. Don't miss what the, what the changed prison guard does for Paul and Silas here in verses 33 and 34. Look at it. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. The stripes that happened the night before at his oversight, at his ruling, the ones he let happen. He's now washing those stripes. Now when they had brought them into his house, in other words, the prison guard's house, he set food before them. So he's renewing them. He's strengthening them physically. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And where's the first place Paul and Silas go when they are released from prison? Luke tells us in verse 40, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Folks, this is the beginning of the church of Philippi, right here in Lydia's home. And who do you think is worshiping with Paul and Silas here? Yeah, you got it. Lydia and her household, the freed slave girl, the prison guard and his family, and maybe a few ex-inmates. And so just imagine, if you will, the joy of worshiping the Lord together. These people, maybe they even sing a few prison songs together. And my question is, how do you even explain that? Simple. The gospel. That's the power of the gospel. These people are as different as different can be. But the gospel has the power to do, listen to me, what no government, what no legislation, or even protests can do. And that is to break down racial and social barriers and unite people in worship. Racially and socially, these people are worlds apart. And yet they were all changed by the same gospel and they were welcomed into the same church. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace at work in people's hearts. That's what we yearn for. That's what we're abandoned to here in LifeBridge as well. We want to see all peoples welcome in this church and come to know Jesus Christ. Same gospel saves everyone. Now in closing, let's circle back to what we said in the very beginning. To bridge the gap to all peoples with the gospel, we must be wholly abandoned to God's mission for God's glory. And here's my question. Why? Why is that necessary? Notice this. Here's why. When the going gets tough, you will abandon following God's spirit, proclaiming God's gospel, and trusting God's grace unless you are wholly abandoned to God's mission. That is true as true can be. I'll speak for myself here. When the going gets tough, as a Christ follower, 
my, my natural tendency is to seek comfort, not to continue in trials and troubles. My natural tendency is to get out from trials and troubles. It's to change the circumstances that are causing my trials and troubles. Everything within me wants to get out from that, run from that. My natural tendency is to seek comfort. With all things being equal, I will always choose comfort over suffering. Do you get me there? But all things, listen to me, are not equal in this life. I was born with a one-way ticket to hell because of my sin until God graciously intervened and opened my heart to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, that changed everything. It changed my eternal destiny, and it changed what I live for and who I live for. Instead of living for myself, I now live for God and His glory. His mission is now my mission. And when God's mission includes trials and troubles, and it always does, listen, I don't abandon God's following God's Spirit. I don't abandon proclaiming God's gospel and trusting God's grace, even though everything within me wants to, even though I am tempted to, and even though I do sometimes. Why? Because I'm wholly abandoned to God's mission for His glory. That's what enabled Paul to continue day in, day out on this second missionary journey. As we're going to see, it is one trial and trouble after another, and he never abandons the mission. Because he is wholly abandoned to God's mission for God's glory, for the sake of the gospel. Oh, that we, let us, be wholly abandoned to God's mission for His glory. Let us be used by God to bridge the gap to all peoples with the gospel. May the gospel so radically change your life and my life that we are ready to say with Paul, for to me, to live is what? Christ, and to die is what? Let's pray. Lord, we come to You. And we come humbly... We come needy, but we come as your children. And we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul here for us. We thank you for the truth of your word and the power of the gospel to save. And to save everyone who believes, regardless of gender, race, or status. Lord, may we be so gripped by your gospel that we would give our lives to it. That we would be wholly abandoned to your mission for your glory. And that would be the priority, that would be the passion of our lives. So Lord, do a work even now that only you can do as we take time to respond to you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Praise team's going to sing just a chorus, and you respond as God leads right where you're seated.